If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand and that way you can hear the Word of God and you can follow along with your eyes and uh, they'll have the Bible marked to the passage we're studying today. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Also a reminder as we're finding our place here that uh, Sunday evening, 6 o'clock, another opportunity to worship the Lord and study God's Word. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he, is of, he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there was in the same country shepherds uh, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray now together. Father, we thank you for this uh, Sunday uh, set aside uh, as it is around the world now to uh, point people to you and to celebrate as Christians the birth of our Savior. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and you would give us the ability, Lord, uh, to uh, have a fresh and a deeper uh, revelation of the miracle of all of this and a fresh and deeper appreciation for the gift of your Son to the world and also to us. Jesus, even as we sang this morning, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge your presence with us now as we turn to your word, this description <clears throat> of, <clears throat> of your birth and 
And we pray that our time in your word would bless you. We pray that you would not only bless us here in this church, but we pray that you would bless every church in this city, every church in the world, Lord, that is declaring this wonderful message to those who know and love you and to those who do not understand the true meaning of Christmas yet. We pray that a tremendous harvest of souls would come into your kingdom as people trust in you, Jesus, as their Savior this morning. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit here and everywhere today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Here in Luke chapter 2, we have, uh, with uh, Matthew's gospel, we have the Holy Spirit's description of of the birth of Jesus, and as a result, it can hardly be improved upon as a, a meditation for uh, the Christmas season and the celebration of Christmas itself. Christmas is a time that is uh, set aside uh, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, uh, Jesus being supernaturally and miraculously conceived in the a virgin of uh, the womb of a virgin by the name of Mary as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then nine months later, uh, Jesus being born into the world uh, in the city of Bethlehem. In verses one through seven here, we have uh, these physical circumstances surrounding uh, the birth of Jesus. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, we're introduced to the birth of Jesus in verse 1, and uh, it is important to understand that in all of that is described in these verses that uh, God is grappling with a problem. Uh, if God uh, ever does grapple with a problem, uh, but he does have one here in this, uh, the circumstances <clears throat> surrounding excuse me, surrounding the birth uh, of his son. Mary was pregnant with Jesus, again as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. She is married to Joseph now at this point. He has taken her as his wife. Uh, he has not known her intimately. They have had no physical relationship with one another until after the birth of Jesus. And God's problem was essentially this that Joseph and Mary were living in their hometown, living in the city of Nazareth, way up in the Galilee region of Israel, way up in the northern section of Israel. But the Old Testament uh, prophets spoke of the fact that the Messiah would be born not in Nazareth, but that the Messiah would be born in the city of uh, David, would be born in the city of Bethlehem, as Micah put it in, in his prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem involved a journey of about 90 miles. Uh, if they were to bypass the region of Samaria, which almost certainly uh, they would, and, uh, and it would be a journey that would take uh, at least three days uh, for an average person to make their way uh, on that journey. And so how does God get a woman who is nine months pregnant, uh, no matter how godly she is, 
uh, no matter how saintly uh, she is, to take a 90-mile journey on foot uh, or at best on the back of a donkey uh, in order for Jesus to be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And that is a problem. On, on the natural level, on the human level. I have never, ever been nine months pregnant. You'll be relieved to know that. It uh, used to be you didn't have to explain these things, but today you have to explain everything in this regard. And, uh, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be nine months pregnant and uh, be facing what she's uh, facing. I would assume that uh, a nesting instinct would be in uh, full swing and not any desire for a journey uh, like this. And how God solved the problem is given to us in verses 1 and 2. God knew that at that time there would be a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Augustus, and he would issue a decree commanding all of the Roman world uh, to go to their hometowns, the place in which they were uh, city of their birth, in order to be registered for the purpose of Roman uh, taxation. And when Caesar Augustus uh, gave a decree, there were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There were no exclusions. There, were, uh, there was no pleading uh, some kind of a, uh, a, uh, an option out of the whole thing by virtue of being nine months pregnant or by virtue of, of being uh, anything. Uh, the journey had to be made. The decree had to be obeyed. And because uh, both uh, Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David, they had to go to the city of David, Bethlehem, in order to be uh, registered. And so uh, at the decree of Caesar Augustus, off to Bethlehem they went. And God's timing, of course, even in, uh, in the decree was perfect. If the decree had gone out uh, a month earlier than it did, then Mary would have gone to Bethlehem and uh, been registered with Joseph and returned to Nazareth before Jesus was born. If the decree had come a month later, then Jesus would have been born in Nazareth instead of, of Bethlehem. And all of it occurred as God declared it would be. And while Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, we're told there in verses 6 and 7, Jesus was born. And because of the decree that Caesar Augustus had given, of course, it put the whole world uh, on the road. And, uh, and they begin to make their way to these cities, traveling these vast distances. And of course, no city in the Roman Empire could have been prepared for the size of the crowds that would then uh, not only, you know, every city only has certain margins. They can accommodate their native population and, and then... Uh, and then only so many rooms for an, uh, an influx of population. There were no uh, Airbnbs in those days where the people that were leaving Bethlehem in order to go to another city could rent their place out to somebody coming in. It, it simply overwhelmed uh, all of the establishments of hospitality in Bethlehem and, and everywhere. And so because of all of that, uh, as a result, there was no room, we're told, for Joseph and Mary to secure a room uh, in the inn. And when you read this and you think about an inn, don't think about a holiday inn. Ah, oh, they're booked up. Ah, oh, rats. 
uh, or to think about a nice little bed and breakfast over in the Carmel or Pacific Grove uh, region. When it talks about an inn here, the word that is used there is, uh, is the word cataluma. And a cataluma was uh, basically a, a large room. It was uh, uh, four walls that constituted a shelter in which uh, poor people would uh, enter in at night and then they would bring uh, all of their animals in as well. It was very, very uh, rough kind of living. It was a rough kind of, uh, of accommodation. And so even uh, in Bethlehem, with this influx of people, there was no room even in uh, the Cataluma. And thus Jesus was probably born in a lean-to, uh, attached to an inn, or born in a cave, or born in a, a stable. And of course, the presence of a manger, that is a feed trough, lets us know that he was born in some kind of a shelter that was intended for animals. We're told that he was then wrapped in swaddling cloths following his uh, birth. He was bundled up in layers and uh, laid in that manger. And here he is having come from the unspeakable, indescribable glory of heaven, even as we've sung this morning. And, uh, and, and here he's born into the absolute humblest of physical circumstances. And you might ask yourself, why in the world would God allow it to be uh, so? And I think that one of the reasons might be so that no one who would ever be uh, born into the world, not in this room, not in any part of, uh, of the world at all, would ever be able to look at Jesus' life, uh, including his birth, and declare that he can't relate to me, he can't understand me. He was born with a silver spoon uh, in, in his mouth. He knows nothing of the difficulty or the hardship that I have seen. And nobody can say that of Jesus concerning his birth, concerning his life, concerning his death, and concerning his burial. Uh, he is approachable to all of us in the deepest suffering uh, that we can face in life. Jesus having been born, Luke's account here of, of the birth in verses 8 through 14 then proceeds to heaven's birth announcement uh, concerning Jesus. Now, uh, everything is a big deal today, isn't it? Now you have these parties that exist and all of these creative ways to announce uh, the sex of the child that is being, uh, uh, is, is uh, due to be born, whether in the form of the confetti that is found in the, the color of the confetti found, whether blue or pink in the balloon that is popped or the, the, uh, the uh, color of the cake under the white icing uh, as the cake is cut at these parties. And so these are, uh, we're very creative uh, today concerning these things. And and birth announcements are uh, becoming more and more creative, inspired as well. But nothing, absolutely nothing in human history excels uh, this birth announcement. The announcement of heaven itself to the entire world concerning the birth of Jesus. And you notice there in verse 8 that the audience heaven chose to make this announcement uh, of Jesus' birth to were country shepherds who were living out in the fields surrounding uh, Bethlehem 
and they were keeping watch over their flock uh, by night. And so this announcement uh, made concerning the birth of Christ was not made to Caesar Augustus. It was not made to the Jewish high priest. It was not made to some prominent uh, political uh, character in the region or to any uh, significant Jewish religious leader uh, of the day. Uh, it is really astonishingly astonishing, and it speaks of the heart of God that God makes this announcement concerning the birth of his son uh, to uh, these shepherds out in the field. And the audience for the birth announcement uh, is as humble as the physical conditions surrounding Jesus' birth. And I think that all of it for sure, among other things, no doubt, but it speaks to the fact that concerning his son and the birth of his son and the salvation that uh, is found in his son, that God is no respecter of persons, that he loves all people, even uh, is, is, none of us as one human being has a right to look down upon another uh, human being intrinsically, and yet we do. And God comes in and, and, uh, and speaks of his love for all people and that he sent his son into the world to save all men and all women, whatever their uh, class. And these shepherds were certainly the forerunners of the class of people who would flock, and no pun intended, but flock in the greatest numbers uh, to Jesus in the course of his public ministry and to Jesus at this moment in human history. As the Bible tells us concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus, that it is the common people that heard him uh, gladly and most gladly. It isn't unlikely that uh, these were temple shepherds, that they were shepherds who were responsible for the keeping of the lambs, uh, that were offered uh, daily morning and evening at the temple in Jerusalem, just literally a stone's throw away from uh, uh, Bethlehem, and, uh, it, and uh, the lambs that were sacrificed there had to be without spot or without blemish, and there was a whole process by which these animals were determined to be without spot and blemish before being sacrificed uh, at, at the temple. And these uh, shepherds, these temple shepherds would have been uh, the first to examine them to determine uh, that they were. And it would be interesting then uh, if then heaven made these shepherds the first to examine now in the birth of Christ as, the, as John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now their presence out it, with their flock, they're not in a, any kind of a shelter, they're not in a cataluma. Uh, they are out in a field and their flock is out in the field with them and they are spending the night out in the field with, with those animals and it indicates that uh, probably September, October is the more likely time for Jesus' birth as opposed to uh, December uh, when the weather in uh, September, October would have been very much like here in California 
and it would have been perfectly fine for spending the night out with the flock and staying close to where you would have them graze, and certainly uh, as opposed to December. Uh, in, uh, in Bethlehem, much like it is here, uh, these were the time of the year that the flocks were brought in, and nobody was spending uh, the night out with their flocks at that, that time uh, of, of the year. And it is important, if you're new to all of this, to realize that the world celebrates Jesus' birth on December 25th, not because we believe that he was born uh, on that day. Most certainly he wasn't born on that day. But December 25th was chosen in an attempt to uh, not only sanctify, but to displace the ancient Roman pagan holiday of Saturnalia. And it occurred, uh, Christmas being celebrated at this time of the year in about 354 A.D., following this great uh, explosion of Christianity within the Roman Empire after a long period of severe, severe persecution against uh, against Christians, and so, uh, and so, this uh, endeavor to supplant, uh, to uh, displace the the uh, practice of the pagan holiday of Saturnalia with Christmas, as you look all around the world today, that has essentially been accomplished. You notice that this birth announcement was made at night, uh, absolutely perfect for appreciating uh, the glory of God that is described here as, uh, and uh, shown all about them, as we're told there in verse 8. Now, the, the initial appearance and the announcement of a lone angel uh, is given to us there in verses 9 through 12. Here they are minding their own business out in this field. I mean, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty simple life. I mean, they don't have a, a, a 8,000-inch television with 4,000 channels to turn to or an, you know, an iPad to be playing solitaire on or uh, to be streaming videos on YouTube. Uh, when it turned night, it was, uh, it was a pretty uh, quiet uh, thing in the, in the ancient world. And so here they are there in that just the stillness of, of the night, and then suddenly an angel of the Lord appears before them, and we're told that uh, the glory uh, that surrounded this angel illuminated the entire area uh, in which they, they were. And their response, we're told in verse 9, was terror. Again, not used to that. We're used to fireworks uh, displays. We're used to, uh, you know, m uh, movies about UFOs coming down and shining lights and all. This is inconceivable to them in terms of, of, of uh, what is happening there. Uh, they have no, uh, no context. There's nothing in the Rolodex or the memory bank to begin to try and get their mind around it, to say, well, this is, uh, this is something like this, only uh, bigger. There is no this to refer it to. And so they're, they're terrified. The angel then comforts their fears by informing them that this is not a night for fear, 
but this night is a cause for great joy to all people there in verse 10. And then in verse 11, he proceeded to tell them why, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel proceeds in verse 12 to tell them exactly where they can find uh, this Savior. And then if you, just as you would think that, that that would be a sufficient birth announcement from heaven concerning this son, it would be like, okay, that was really, really special. Uh, heaven isn't through. At all. And then in verses 13 and 14, now you have the addition of a heavenly host, an, an entire choir of angels. Uh, literally, not literally, but it is something uh, equivalent to that. And uh, this larger angelic host uh, accompanying the angels uh, in, in celebrating this, the, the announcement of this birth. And it's kind of like a, a Christmas play where you've got something going on stage, but off stage in the wings, there's this entire choir that can't wait to get on the stage and, and expla- declare uh, their excitement over what it is that that is being uh, communicated. And so they come forth, they burst out in praise uh, to God for what he had done for mankind in the sending of this child. And uh, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, very, very humble indeed, but the excitement of heaven surrounding that birth, it can hardly be contained. I mean, it's just lights, camera, action, and this is one of the really beautiful scenes to me in, in all of the Bible because the, what, what it captures is the, the sheer excitement of heaven over the birth of this Savior, of the birth of this child. I mean, it, it's on a par with uh, Jesus being with the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration where God uh, shows up in all of it, Jesus is in his glory. And then the father declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And here you have the, the excitement of heaven at the birth of this savior, at the birth of this child being uh, expressed in such a wonderful way. And the excitement of heaven over the gift of this child of mankind, I mean, it just fairly leaps off of the page. And the reason that it's important to just stop and have a Selah moment there and camp there for a moment is that this is what heaven thinks of this Savior. This is what heaven thinks of this salvation that it has provided to mankind. Uh, Whatever mankind may think of it, or whatever man's reaction may be to it, heaven understands the, the glory and the magnificence of the gift and of the event and the giving uh, of this Savior into the world, that something priceless has occurred from the vantage point of heaven. And then uh, we notice the shepherd's reaction to the news in verses 15 through uh, 20. All of their fear turns uh, into excitement, uh, and they did what everyone should do. Upon hearing uh, heaven's announcement concerning this Savior, they proceeded to investigate this Christ 
and to uh, investigate uh, his life for themselves. And as they do, they discover all of it to be exactly as heaven declared it to them, all of it true. And then they not only believed it for themselves, but then proceeded to make known the birth of the Savior to everyone that they came uh, into contact uh, with, giving uh, God glory and praises, we're told, for what they had seen and what they had heard. In our increasingly secular uh, culture and, and the secular celebration of Christmas, I think it's an Im- important to make the point that uh, the fruit of Christmas can only spring forth from the root of Christmas. And I'm not trying to be too clever by half. It's the, it was just the best way that I could... Uh, put it and, and make it clear in my mind. And what I mean by that is this, that mankind can only receive the fruit of Christmas as we find it described in our passage. And that is described in verse 10 as joy. It is described in verse 14 as peace. And we can only receive the fruit of Christmas, the joy and peace that God wants each of us to know as his uh, creation, as we also fully embrace the root or the source of all of those things in the Christmas story. And the source is described to us in that uh, verse, verse 11, where uh, Jesus is described as a Savior, uh, as Christ, and as uh, the Lord. And of course, all of us as Christians, we recognize, and, and anyone who keeps their eyes open at all, we recognize that as the years go by, uh, and our culture becomes more and more uh, post-Christian and more and more uh, secular, we see the effort, I mean the almost monumental effort uh, that uh, is being made by the world to uh, somehow partake in the fruit uh, while ignoring the root and uh, as it's reflected more and more uh, in, in every realm, but certainly in Christmas cards. And uh, increasingly, uh, the Christmas cards as you would receive them once did and now uh, do, they emphasize the themes, of course, of joy and peace. And why do they? Because they're themes that come from uh, the Bible. They come from the Christmas account as it's in, in, in the Bible. But here you see increasingly the themes of peace and joy uh, being mentioned and uh, putting at the forefront without, uh, uh, while ignoring any mention of Jesus' birth, much less that he was born as a Savior in order to provide us with salvation from our sins. And as a result, uh, there are no shortage of Christmas cards available uh, to purchase which uh, speak of this time of the year as a time of joy. And you open up the card and it says, may joy fill your lives during this season and throughout the year. There are no shortage of cards that are found that, uh, that speak of the theme of peace. And you open the card and they say something like, may peace fill your lives during this holiday season and throughout the coming year. Uh, it's interesting, Shutterfly this year on their website 
They list some of their most popular uh, non-religious themes for Christmas uh, and, uh, this year. And uh, you can go to the category of happy holidays. And uh, these cards are described as these card templates share the importance of love, peace, and joy. Uh, good enough so far. But then it goes on to say, no matter what denomination uh, the giver or the recipients are. Then you have the Mary and Bright category, which is described as follows. The sparkle of the season and the celebratory atmosphere are things to be celebrated. This message says it all. And then uh, the winter wonderland selection that is described. Snowflakes, boughs, and holly all hearken to the wintry weather, and they make recipients think about cozy times with friends and family, which is what the season is all about. And uh, thus, Christmas has become more about joy and peace rather than about a Savior. But the problem with all of this is that there is no true joy or peace in life uh, apart from a Savior and apart from a Lord because it is out of His salvation that these things flow forth. And thus joy and peace uh, uh, come to just represent in our current culture kind of nice philosophical thoughts or or uh, uh, unachievable human ideals that can never ever be uh, realized rather than uh, realities in our lives. Realities that God not only wants to impart to us, to every single one of us, but knows that we desperately need from Him. And joy and peace are not self-existent things. They are always the byproduct of something else, always the byproduct of something greater. So they uh, always have uh, some, something foundational to them. And in this case, they are the byproducts of making Jesus uh, our Savior, our Messiah, and our Lord. And these are wonderful words. Uh, joy and peace. They represent a uh, wonderful spiritual reality that God wants to make a part uh, of our lives, but they will always remain elusive until I am in a relationship with God through the Savior that He has sent. And again, you notice in our passage the fruit that God wants to make a part of our lives. Joy is it's listed there in verse 10. And uh, to put some uh, hands and feet upon what kind of a joy is God talking about here. It's the joy of having our sins forgiven. It's the joy of being released from the guilt of our sin. That is a great cause for joy. That is a deep abiding cause for joy. It is the joy of having a personal relationship with God, the very thing that we have been created for, and thus being free from a, 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 a black hole of emptiness and loneliness and lack of purpose and meaning in life. 
because now we're engaged in uh, the single great meaning in life, and that is a relationship with God. There's the joy of being made into a new creation, of being given a fresh start by God, the joy of being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, the joy of the confidence of one day being in heaven. Not to possess everlasting life, uh, in some day, but to possess it now. But everybody has everlasting life. Everyone will live for eternity. But here is the confidence that our eternity will be spent in the glory uh, of the heaven of the God that we uh, love and have trusted in. And on and on we could go concerning the deep, enduring, abiding, unchanging causes for joy that God wants to bring into every person's life. He talks about peace in verse 14. Uh, peace with God. Uh, the peace of knowing that my war against God is over. And what an exhausting war it was. Uh, what a casualty we made of ourselves in that war against God. But now having trusted in his Savior, that war is over. And now we have peace with God and the peace of knowing that I am right with God and that no matter what anybody else thinks uh, of me, no matter what my circumstances are in my, in, in my life, that my war and my rebellion against God is over. He has won and I am now at peace with him. And then not only uh, peace with God, but the peace of God. The peace of God is the peace that God provides to us. The peace that he provides to our hearts, to our minds, to our uh, inner man because of our relationship with him. And it is the peace and freedom from worry that comes with realizing that I am no longer alone in life. I am no longer navigating life on my uh, own, but that we are now living it with a heavenly Father who loves us beyond description, that he is for us, and that he is always with us. And we can only know peace, true peace, when the source of our peace is greater than uh, every threat to our peace in the world. And only God possesses that kind of a peace, and only he can bring it uh, into our lives. And then you notice in verse 11, what is the root or the source of these blessings? Once again, a Savior. This joy and this peace becomes ours when we make Jesus our Savior. Because when we do, he saves us from the judgment, from the penalty that our sin deserves, but also from the very power of sin uh, in, in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he gives us now the will, the desire, the longing to live a different kind of life, a life that pleases God, the life that we know that we ought to live. And he gives us the desire to live it and he also then gives us the power to live that kind uh, of, of life. 
And then uh, there is this wonderful mention of Christ. And here is the recognition that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the anointed one, as Messiah means, the Christ in, in, the, uh, in the Scriptures. Promised by God to mankind from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden uh, through his prophets throughout the period of human history leading up uh, to his birth. In other words, to trust in Christ, in, in Jesus as Christ, is not something that is a blind faith. Uh, it is a faith that is based upon the surest thing in the world, and that is the very Word of God. And then to make Him our Lord. And that is that joy and peace is found not merely in knowing Jesus as our Savior, but also making Him uh, our Lord, committing now to follow Him and to obey Him in our lives, whatever the cost. And how in the world does a person uh, do that. And it's important to understand that because here's the description, and it is a very feeble description of the gift, but it is a description. But no gift does us any good unless we receive that gift, even when that gift comes from God. And how exactly do we receive this gift into our lives? Of course, Jesus put it best in the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it happens by choosing Jesus' invitation to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin and then to make him your Lord. And, it, and when a person does that, the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience in life occurs. And that is the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives instantaneously. We are born again spiritually. And, and to be born again is a spiritual birth. We've already been born physically. But we desperately need to be born again, born spiritually uh, in, in order to have a relationship with God. And, uh, and we'll be born again as the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And then he brings a supernatural joy and peace into our uh, lives. And Christmas is all about the birth of a Savior, the gift, gift of a Savior. But that gift must be received. And one of the most amazing demonstrations of the... Uh, vulnerability of God, if we can speak of it that way, is that God extends the greatest gift He possesses and the greatest gift that He could give to us. And He gives us the freedom to choose. He gives us the freedom to either receive that gift and bring glory to God in the highest in doing so. Or to sniff at it. Or to snub it. Or to turn my back on it and walk away from it. And yet he is willing to make that offer, knowing that many people will, with the knowledge 
that many people won't walk away from it, but will receive it, this gift, into their life. And that's how you receive it. As uh, John put it in his gospel, but unto as many as received him, to them he gave the authority or the power to be called the sons of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing in life works when you get it backwards. In fact, we have multiple sayings in our culture that speak to this, but one of an old saying in our culture talks about putting the cart before the horse, and it communicates that something is being put in the wrong order or that it's being done backwards. And because it's being done backwards, it will never, ever work. And increasingly, our culture has done exactly this to Christmas. And elevating the message of peace and joy, but then failing to then tell us that it can only truly be found in a Savior, in a Messiah, in a Lord, that is, in Jesus Himself. And thus it's no wonder that every year at Christmas season uh, it, it, it becomes marked more and more by disappointment, by depression, uh, by suicide. And of course all of these awful things are growing exponentially within our Western culture during this season to the very degree that this idea deal of the fruit is put before an entire population, but that the means by which to appropriate that fruit is then hidden from them. And so we're thankful for the Word of God today to know how to receive all of it. Heaven's gift of a Savior to mankind is not a game. It is not even a Christmas thing. God knows how desperately we need as human beings the gift of salvation, to be saved from our sins, to be saved from the power of the devil, to be saved even from ourselves. And we are wise to receive his gift this morning. And this is what God wants you to know about Christmas and what I want you to know about Christmas and what we as a church family want you to know about Christmas. Because every day is Christmas for us as Christians. And all of these things that we're talking about here today, they are a living, abiding reality within our lives as Christians. And we consider ourselves to be indescribably rich as a result of it. But we're not misers. We want everyone, including you, to know what we know and what is our daily portion. And immediately following this service, there'll be pastors and men and women up in front who would love to answer your questions about all of this and then to pray with you to trust in Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, and in doing so, to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It is that simple. And for those of us who know the Lord this morning, um, the worship team is going to uh, close us in a Christmas song entitled, uh, The Christmas Bells. 
and then uh, we'll remain seated for that song and then Mike will invite us to stand and they will close us then in a final closing song. Pastor Tom, he made us aware of uh, this song uh, during his teaching to us as a staff at our staff devotional uh, that we have each Monday morning. And, uh, and the song is born from a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And Longfellow was, uh, lived in the period of the Civil War. He was an abolitionist. And uh, he wrote this at the height of the Civil War, this poem. And uh, he was a man who knew great loss in his life. He married his first wife in uh, 1831. And uh, she died four years later after a miscarriage. And then in 1861, his second wife died uh, of burns from a tragic accident when her uh, dress caught on fire and uh, burned her alive before his very eyes. And, uh, and Longfellow himself was permanently disfigured in his uh, attempts to save her. And then in 1863, his oldest son was seriously wounded while in the Union Army uh, during fighting in Northern Virginia. And this, all of these things weighed so heavily upon him. Uh, it, it, on Christmas morning in 1863, he sat down and he wrote his poem, The Christmas Bells. And years later, it would be set to music. And as he, in that poem, he explored the horror and the suffering of this world uh, from the context of, of the Civil War through six stanzas. And then on the seventh stanza, when uh, he then proceeded to preach the gospel uh, to himself and uh, to us, communicating as he sat there and on that Christmas morning with so much weighing upon him in terms of the world and in terms of personal loss. But he hears the bells ringing uh, uh, in a celebration uh, of, of Christmas. And it began to uh, work upon him. And he writes this song communicating that the message of Christmas the promise of peace and joy, uh, it abides through all of the tragedies of life uh, because God makes sure uh, that they do and that peace and joy remain an enduring constant in our lives because they have their origin in God. And because they, they do, they lie far beyond the reach of the circumstances of life, whether personal or whether uh, worldwide or international and though they can appear to be lost for a time they aren't really uh, they're there and they will rise to the surface once again and God will make sure of it and may the song be an encouragement to each of us as Christians if this Christmas finds us in a season of deep trial and suffering and difficulty Mike, I turn it over to you.
worth goodwill to men I thought how as the day had come the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth goodwill to men peace on earth goodwill to men in despair I bowed my head there is no peace on earth I said for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth goodwill to men peace on earth goodwill to men Good.